Welcome to the Insight Podcast. Joining me on the show today is Ross White. Ross is a professor of clinical psychology, he's an ACT trainer, and he's the author of The Flexible Mind. I talked to Ross about resilience and his useful analogy to understand it. We talk about finding balance when it comes to resilience and understanding that resilience is a process. We talk about what burnout is and its prevalence, the causes of burnout, and how we can address burnout at an organizational and individual level, as well as much, much more. Enjoy the episode. So I saw that you went to the new, the, the Sphere in Las Vegas recently, yeah. didn't you? And I've seen videos of that popping up on uh, on my Instagram and I'm like, wow, that looks pretty incredible. What what was it like? It was amazing. Uh, once in a lifetime opportunity for my wife and I to go over to Las Vegas and see you too. So it was the first time my wife had seen them. I have to concede it was my eighth time. <laughs> Super fan. Yeah, 30 years on from the first time that I saw them back in 1993. Wow. So them opening the sphere, this $2.3 billion arena, um, the way that they combined their music with the visuals. Mm. So for anybody who doesn't know, the entire inner lining of this spherical arena is one big video wall. And it can literally transport you anywhere in the world Mm. because it's high resolution high definition images that uh, can transform the backdrop in an instant so it was stunning and i'm really proud actually of you too because you know i've been on a journey with them right through my life over that 30-year period and for them to be innovating the way that they are i think 45 years after they first formed to be at the cutting edge of music is is fantastic, but it's a yeah. big big venue, and for them to be able to make it feel so intimate with the music as well, mm. it was wonderful. So thanks, yeah, great great ah, opportunity. Ah, nice, that's really cool. And are you one of the people that like will will take videos during it? Because I kind of think with with an experience like that, where's where's the balance between wanting to capturing wanting mm. wanting to capture on on video, but also wanting to just be completely there and present? It's difficult, isn't it? It's attention. I have to concede there were some <laughs> videos, but my wife and I sort of apportioned that out. So nice. that's good. I like that. Videoing, uh, the other could appreciate. And I think once we got into it, it was more about just enjoying the spectacle. And um, th- there were some genuinely very moving moments, uh, the way that it was put together. So, yeah, fantastic. Nice, nice. I'm, I'm a little jealous. I'm a little jealous. Maybe one day I'll get over there. Yeah. Um, right. So today I want to talk to you about two interesting topics, to, um, resilience and burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, can we start with resilience? Um, what does that word mean to you? What does resilience mean to you? Yeah, it's an interesting word, a versatile word. And its versatility, I think, has lent itself to its wide use. Whether that be in mental health, occupational settings, in competitive sport environments, you hear resilience a lot. You don't have to to go too far to to hear it. It comes from the Latin verb resilire, which literally translates as um, to leap back or to bounce back. And uh, I often laugh remembering Ian Dowie, the former professional footballer, who played for Northern Ireland, and I'm a, a Northern Ireland fan. In the 90s, he was on, I think, Football Focus or Match of the Day, and he coined the phrase bounce back ability. Oh, really? Now in, in the dictionary. Yeah. So Ian Dowie captured some of that spirit of resilience whenever he started to use that term. The way that I would explain this, Sam, is... If we were to think about a boat leaving a port, so in Northern Ireland where I live, uh, you can get a ferry from Larne over to Scotland to Ken Ryan. 
And I'll use this to capture some of the versatility of resilience. Let's say a storm blows up in the Irish Sea and that ferry is able to go about that journey unhindered. Despite the high seas, it gets across to Cairn Ryan unhindered. That's a, a resilient uh, position, a process of resilience to be able to come through that storm unhindered. Equally, however, that ferry could get blown off course by those high seas, right? And find its way back onto course and then complete the journey. So there's been a level of disruption that's prevented that journey happening the way it maybe was intended to happen, but it's been able to get back on track and complete the journey. That is also arguably a form of resilience. But I would further that it could be resilient for that boat to acknowledge, actually, it's really tricky to get across. Um, We're not going to be able to complete this journey and to find its way back to the port that it departed from, Larne, in this case. And it could even be resilient for the people that design that boat to then reflect and think, what could we do better to equip that boat to complete the journey in spite of high seas? So they come up with a better design, uh, a new improved ferry that is able to weather the storm better. Now that might be akin to something like post-traumatic growth, perhaps, which arguably is a form of resilience as well. So yes, it's a versatile word and it's being used in different ways. So if we think about that unhindered journey, so it hasn't been blown off course and it completes the journey, that's often referred to as robust resilience. Right. Robust. And if it's been blown off course and then it finds its way back on track and completes the journey that's rebound resilience. Now for the boat, we can obviously swap in people or groups of people, right? So the analogy hopefully works in that sense. So there are different forms of resilience and people use it in different ways. And I think that can be confusing. Yeah. Nice, nice analogy. And so if we, if we go further with that, then like, where is the, the sweet spot of resilience? Mm -hmm. Um, with that analogy, where is, how does one find the, um, yeah, that balance between pushing through, even though it's difficult or you're in that boat and it's stormy seas and you just think, well, I've, you know, we've come this far now. Um, we knew it was going to be tough. So I just need to get my head down and get on with it. Or there's the, this is, this is too hard and I need to take a step back now. Maybe I need to go back to port or, you know, the, the different options that, that you uh, mentioned before. Like, yeah. How do we decide with, with, with resilience as an individual? How do we know when we are finding that sweet spot, not pushing ourselves too far, but also how do we know or how, how can we like accept like things that things are difficult right now and we've just got to show a bit of grit and a bit, a bit of determination? Mm-hmm. I think it's a great question and rather than thinking about it as a a sweet spot, um, which I understand the intention of the question, I really do get that, but it kind of suggests that there's a particular point, if you like, where that balance, if you like, can be struck. And it's important more, and this is certainly the way that the research has gone, um, to think about resilience as a process. Okay. So rather than a, a point, it's more a process. And for me, I'm particularly interested um, in psychological flexibility as a concept. And psychological flexibility is our ability to have difficult thoughts and feelings, to have difficult experiences, and find ways of being open to those experiences and still doing what matters to us. So there's that kind of sense of orienting towards our purpose, even though there might be difficulties experienced along the way. So how might psychological flexibility help with that process Mm -hmm. of resilience? Well, think about psychological flexibility in a book that we published a a couple of years ago entitled Acceptance and Commitment Approaches for Supporting Athletes' Mental Health and Wellbeing. We talked about the pod of psychological flexibility P-O-D, and POD stands for present, open, and doing what matters. 
So present is our ability to connect with our five senses in those moments where we feel tempted to mentally time travel to the past um, or to, to the future. It's also our ability to notice that our thoughts and feelings can come and go, that we endure, that we're the context in which those experiences happen. Being open is about recognizing that our minds are story generating machines and being willing to show up to some of the emotions that come with those stories and then doing what matters is really exploring what our purpose is Mm -hmm. and what our values are, how we want to be in this world as we pursue our purpose. So what qualities do we want to bring and how we interact with others, how we interact with ourselves and can we commit to goals that are consistent with those values? So being present, being open, doing what matters, I think can play a big role in that process of resilience, helping people to weather the storm and to move towards, if you like, you can think about purpose as a lighthouse, right? That directs us through that storm that we can orientate to. Right. So that can be like your little your little toolkit for um, when you're going through tough times. So Uh, what might... Yeah. So what might that look like? You know, when, when you say about um, being present, does that mean engaging in certain practices like mindfulness, like meditation? Um, What else might you add to, to, to each of those, to the, to the, to the pod um, toolkit? How can, what could people take away and and try? Yeah, absolutely. So POD, present open doing what matters is very much about orientating us then to strategies techniques tools that we can use Mm. to help enhance that psychological flexibility so to put it really simply if we think about present and open together that's mindfulness it's akin to mindfulness so there's a non-judgmental present moment awareness a willingness to show up to the here and now right? So absolutely, mindfulness practices can help with that. But there are also other practices that can help. So if we think about being open and recognizing the story nature of our mind, we can use techniques called diffusion, sometimes referred to as cognitive distancing. I haven't heard of that, so tell me more. Yeah, we can shift our relationship with the thoughts that we're having So it's not about dismissing them. It's not about trivializing them. It's about recognizing that we have thoughts. Thoughts don't have us. So trying to detach from the literal content of our thoughts that can be quite critical at times, right? So To say the least. (laughs) Yeah, let me give the example of a thought that I have (laughs) from time to time, and it's that I am useless thought. Okay, so if you think about the way that that is expressed, I am useless. So I am essentially defining myself on the basis of the content of the thought that I'm having about myself. Mm-hmm. There's not much wriggle room there. So diffusion or cognitive distancing is about trying to open up a little distance between us and the content of that thought, helping us to recognize that we're engaged in a process of thinking. And that indeed we are the context in which that process of thinking is happening. We are not those thoughts. We are having those thoughts. So let me give you a little example. Uh, I could be a reporter on the scene of my thought. And I could be relaying it into myself. I could say, here we are about 10 minutes into our uh, podcast together. And I'm noticing I'm having the thought that I may not be explaining this as clearly as I would like to, right? So the job of the reporter is to report the story. It's not to get caught up in the story. You know, that's not a good deal for the reporter. And when we do that, there's much more of an observational piece that we're noticing the thought rather than being swept away with it. So that's the uh, being present and being open piece and with the doing what matters well we can explore what our values are and a very simple way that i would um perhaps suggest that you could do that today 
Now, you may have one of those significant birthdays coming up, Sam. It, it might be one of those ones that end in a zero. You might be <laughs> far enough away from that, but let's imagine. A couple, of, year, a couple of years away, but yeah. <laughs> good, good, good man. So you can imagine that uh, people want to celebrate that significant birthday with you. You could think about a uh, venue, maybe a restaurant or a hotel where you feel really comfortable and that's where a party is being held. And you're glad that it's that venue and it's a place that you, you know that you'll enjoy yourself. Now, on that evening, friends, family, colleagues are gathered and they're there to uh, celebrate this big occasion with you. And you look around and you think, this is pretty cool. It's the people that I really want to be there. And um, you're glad that you're having this opportunity to spend time with them and they're spending time with each other too. And it's got to that point in the night where somebody is stepping forward to say a few words about who you are, how you are in the world, the difference that you bring, how you are with other people, how you are with yourself. And the question here is, what would you hope that the person might say in that space about you? What qualities would they be picking up on? Now, I'll be very quick to highlight that your mind will jump to the I but, and yeah, that's what I'd like them to say. Well, this is your opportunity. Have the freedom to focus on what it is you would like them to say. And thank your mind for that sort of reality check that it thinks it's doing and come back to, okay, what qualities would I hope that they they might pick up? Any thoughts? Now, I put you on the spot there, but... Any thoughts about what you've just explained? Or what you would hope that the, the person oh, might... What they'd, oh, what they Oh, yeah. I, no, I, and I have thought about this, for sure. I, I've, in the last year, through a bit of coaching, you know, mm-hmm. thought more about my values, um, trying to pick like a, a, you know, a five that I really want to live by. Um, and what would I hope people say? I guess I would hope... I would hope people would say that I'm kind of a warm person, that I am like affectionate. I think I'd like to think people think I'm good, a good listener, um, understanding and perhaps accepting of, you know, mistakes, everything like that, because I've had my fair share of them. <laughs> um, what else? Um, it, it, it always kind of, it, it, Definitely kind of hits me in the feels when people say, like, I, I've, I've inspired them to do something, whether that's, you know, changing eating habits or help them sleep better or, or um, you know, I share videos on Instagram of my workouts and someone messaged me saying, oh, I'm going to try that one. That was great. You know, I'm, I've, I'm getting more in the gym um, recently and thank you for, like, for the help. So I think that as well, yeah. So oh, warm, yeah. understanding inspiring which is maybe a bit uh, fluffy but yeah yeah those are i love great. it and there's such an interpersonal quality to that you know it's yeah. about your style of interacting with others and what you bring mm. to others yeah. and we'll not do it now but a check that's important with that would be for me to check in and just say well are any of those values or qualities there because you feel you ought to have them there often in life mm. we might be guilted into having particular values whether it be through family relationships church uh, teams that we're involved in right and it's important to emphasize that values from the perspective of psychological flexibility are freely chosen by the individual that they're not if you like imposed so checking in with uh, my clients around well or any of them there because you feel you ought to have them there and just guiding them in and thinking a bit more freely about what values matter to them. Yeah, but so how, how would you get there though? How, how would I understand whether it is something that is kind of intrinsic or whether it's been influenced by other people? Is it just kind of a case of sitting with it and, and, and let it stew for a while and see if it's really true to you? My sense of my work with the clients is that if that is an issue, people get onto it very quickly. So another way that I help people explore their values is through card sort tasks, where there are lots of values written on cards and people pick out maybe up to 10 that they think are important to how they want to live their life. And when they've got their 10, that's a question that I'll put to them then. Well, are any of those there because you feel you ought to have them there? People being influencing you and actually you 
recognize now that that's not necessarily a direction that you want to move in. So my clients can get on quite quickly to that one, that one, (laughs) and check those out and set them aside. Other people say, no, I I very much approached this with that lens that actually they're freely chosen by me. Um, And that may be the case with you whenever you were thinking through your response um, to my question, that actually you had that sort of gear in in, and you were uh, eyes on what mattered to you. Yeah, well, I think... I think you can get a sense of your values when you kind of feel most like alive and present. I think mm-hmm. like my, um, um, Nilesh Satguru, who I've, who I've done co- coaching sessions with, he talks about how do you feel like, when, when do you feel on the path? He says, yeah. like, when do you feel on the path? Where do you feel like everything's aligned and you're like moving mm-hmm. through the day, um, the way that you want to. And I feel like when I feel most content is mm-hmm. when, you know, I'm giving someone a big hug or I'm chatting about something that I find really interesting or someone's sharing something with me that they're going through that's difficult and, and we're trying to kind of like flesh it out, that kind of thing. So I think maybe that can give you an indication, can't it, of, of what's what's your value? Absolutely. When, uh, when you're on it, you can explore, well, what is it about this experience now that is speaking to my personal values and yeah. more broadly my, my sense of purpose? But I would almost highlight, and this is maybe less recognized, um, but when you're off it, Mm. that is also such a valuable opportunity to understand our values. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a saying that um, in our pain, we will find our purpose. And in our purpose, we will find our pain. Those are two sides, essentially, of the one coin that, well, if you value something, then you will worry about it because it's important, it matters. And equally, if you're worried about something, it's an indication close by that there's something that matters, something important that's being squeezed or impinged upon. So using our our upset, using our discomfort, using our stress to provide a window to understand what our values might be, what is it that is important enough for you to feel so upset? So it's not always the case, but sometimes our emotions can be messengers in that sense, flagging that actually our values are being impacted on. Yeah, for sure. And like those days where you know you've kind of done the, not the wrong things, but just things that don't align with your values. You know, if I wake up and I jump straight on my phone and um, then spend the day yeah, scrolling through social media and I don't do any form of exercise, I don't go for a run or I don't go to the gym. And then I don't know, I eat like a really rubbish meal for lunch that, I don't know, just some process, like a load of crisps and chocolate or something like that. Like, then I definitely kind of get that indication that yeah, this is this is not this is not for me. This is not leaving me feeling good. Of course, there are days when you know I have a bit more of a relaxed morning and I take a day off from training and all that good stuff. But mm-hmm. you know, most of the time we want to be on the path, don't we? Not, yeah. not experiencing that. Yeah, values alignment, and there are absolutely going to be times where there's a misalignment, and yeah. it's important not to give ourselves too hard a time about that because in every new moment there's an opportunity to make different choices that can help bring about that alignment again Mm. so i guess we could kind of like pivot towards burnout now um Mm -hmm. you know if people are going through a particularly tough time and, and they are showing that resilience and they're kind of they've put the tools in place and they are um trying to handle whatever life is throwing at them and get through it but then of course that, that they can get to a point can't they whether that's um something that's going on with family whether it's at work i suppose more likely that um things just get too much and people can experience burnout um so I've, i don't know could we start with that? how much of an issue is it how, like how how prevalent is burnout in in modern day society yeah Thanks for the question. I think it's helpful to revisit some of the history around the concept. So around about the early 70s into 74, I think was quite a pivotal year for um, burnout. We had two researchers or clinicians who were working simultaneously, but independently, who really started to shine a light on the concept of burnout. 
So there was um, Herbert Freudenberger, who was a, a clinician, a physician, working two jobs in New York at that time. So he would work in a public hospital during the day, and then he would work in a clinic that was for the community to help um, address physical health problems that uh, community members were experiencing. And then on the West Coast, there was Christina Maslach, who was working around occupational psychology and occupational uh, impacts uh, on human well-being. And both of them coined the term burnout around the same time. Interesting. So, yeah, burnout uh, has really developed in terms of our understanding since that point. Clearly, people would have struggled with work beforehand, but the, the parlance, if you like, the concept wasn't used prior to the point that it was proposed by Freudenberger and, and Maslach, and there's been a lot of work since. Broadly speaking, there are three key elements to burnout. So the first one is about reduced energy. So there's an exhaustion piece here. The second one is this sense of um, almost depersonalization, which is where we get disenfranchised or distant from our work, that it's often referred to as cynicism, cynicism in the workplace. So exhaustion, mm-hmm. cynicism. And then the third piece is a reduced uh, performance in the workplace. So reduced personal effectiveness, if you like. So burnout is a form of exhaustion that is particular to occupational settings, right? right. And Christina Maslach developed the Maslach Burnout Inventory that has three subscales that tap in to those three elements, right? The exhaustion piece, the cynicism piece, and then the reduced effectiveness piece. So there are ways of um, methodically and systematically assessing burnout, but often it gets reduced to one question. So in big occupational surveys, it could be, have you... Or have you recently experienced in the last few months um, feelings of burnout? Yes or no? Okay. So important to recognize that there are systematic ways of assessing burnout that are quite comprehensive, but a lot of the time it gets reduced to single questions. And um, there's an organization called Future Forum. And Future Forum conducted large surveys of 10,000 employees across multiple different countries. Uh, And these were quarterly surveys, and they ran from May 2021 to November of 2022. And over that time period, they reported that levels of burnout increased from 38% of the 10,000 that were being assessed to 42%. So there was an increase across time. So Yeah, there are indications that burnout is on the increase. COVID has contributed perhaps to some of that. Clearly, people are under pressure to uh, from organizations, maybe recoup losses. And certainly the indications are that we actually work more now. We we work (laughs) higher numbers of hours post-COVID than we did before, which in some ways might have been supported by working from home where that line is blurred right between work and home life and um yeah certainly organizations have to take responsibility for the workloads that the employees are under about the extent to which those employees are adequately resourced to do the job that they need to do so have they had the right training Mm-hmm. Um, and then deadlines, so expectations around how long tasks should take. Organizations need to be more considerate of that as they do the work-life blend, you know, the extent to which um, their employees do have some autonomy and do have some agency around how they do the work as opposed to it needs to be done this way. Right, yeah. So these are kind of the the causes. When when organisations are not getting those things right, that's what can lead to burnout. Is that right? Yes, and sometimes it's also about the extent to which we also lose sight of our purpose, and uh, yeah. it can get to a point in life where the uh, tail wags the dog that we get set <laughs> on a particular track, and over time, that saying there's a sense that that track is no longer for us and yet we feel constrained and hemmed in 
And our sense of autonomy and agency starts to get impacted around that. Yeah, because I, I guess this is, well, what I want to come on to talk to you about that, um, the kind of responsibilities in terms of the individual and the culture, mm-hmm. because it, it must be really tricky because surely like one kind of culture and, and one uh, and some expectations for someone, it might be like that's what they thrive under, like they they thrive with the high pressure and the, the demand. Like I think um, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is sometimes given as an example of this. Like he, he cut the war- workforce, I believe, by like some crazy percentage and said basically like I only want people here who are, I just noticed my laptop's not plugged in and running out low on battery, so hold on. There we go. <laughs> um, that he was like, I only want people that, you know, want to sleep in their office overnight and they just want to get their head down and work, 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 work. And and maybe we haven't we got to kind of recognize that some people love that, like they throw themselves into their work and they can just spend hours and hours and hours on it. But then of course, some people under that kind of pressure, my, myself included, if I was just stuck in an office for hours on end, it would like, I would find it way too tough. So yeah, where, where's where's that balance there between the individual, the organisation, and is it that some people kind of got uh, have got more of a threshold for burnout than others, or is that not being very kind uh, to say well, that? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we can revert back to some long-standing models, if you like, around our tolerance of stress, the stress vulnerability model, and it often talks about uh, each of us having. A particular capacity to manage uh, workloads and stress associated with those workloads. And you could think about that as a bucket, right? Mm-hmm. So each of us have varying sizes of buckets. And then you've got the workload and the stress, which is akin to the flow of the water into the bucket, right? Sometimes that water is going to run faster than others, right? So you can adjust the level of um, pressure that's coming into the bucket. Um, And essentially the overspill, if things get too full and it starts to spill over the edges of the bucket, that's when we start to experience things like burnout or exhaustion. It's not sustainable in the longer term. So there are ways, if you like, that we could draw water off from the bottom of the the, the bucket. We could uh, do things that would help introduce some flexibility into the size of the container, right? So there are ways that we can respond accordingly um so there are there are models that we can use to to understand it now in terms of that idea about well working intensively and thriving under the intense pressure the key thing is to think about well over what timeline are we judging the workability or effectiveness of that as an approach and sure if your lens is very focused on a short period of time Yes, you can do that potentially for uh, two, three, four months. And if you extend the lens, the breadth of that lens and look at that longer term, the impact may start to show over a a longer period of time and it can be quite a dramatic impact. So I think that's an important consideration that we as uh, as, uh, a species have phenomenal capacity to flex without breaking, but at the same time, we need to recognize that there are limits to that and that we need to um, think about, well, what's going to be maintainable over the longer period of time? I'm, I'm really interested in that, you know, what helps us thrive in the longer term? Yeah. And I guess, uh, have you thought about the comparisons with, say, a professional athlete that, yeah, they could be training hard and they could keep going and keep mm-hmm. wanting to to train, 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 but actually... I think quite often athletes are having to be told to to dial it down a bit now, aren't they? And, and we've got, you know, wearables like Whoop and Aura and these things that uh, are like telling athletes, oh, no, you, you need to take it a bit easy today. Like your your stress score or your strain score, whatever it is um, from the day before is showing me that actually today you need to take it easy. You might have woken up fe- feeling great and ready to get on it again. But actually, so sometimes I go for, well, once a week, I'll go for a a steady zone two run where it's like, it's really gentle and it's, it's more, it's difficult to slow down. Like you're, you're finding it difficult to take it more easy, but, but I know that it will leave me feeling really good if I, if I, if once a week I have that really easy, gentle day. 
Yeah, I think that's such a helpful comparison. And I think it helps to highlight a big challenge. Whereas we can track uh, indicators of physical stress, whether that be heart rate, blood pressure, respiration rate, um, levels of um, uh, lactate in muscle tissue, Mm-hmm. We are less sophisticated at this stage at having objectifiable measures of mental exhaustion. And uh, in uh, science-driven uh, areas, arenas like competitive sports, where there's so much focus on marginal gains, yeah. um, you know, ha- not having those metrics to highlight actually the emotional cost uh, on athletes and other high-performance individuals has been a challenge because that's the language that is spoken in those high performance environments. So I think there's a job of work for us to try, if you like, to help uh, shed some light on important metrics around um, emotional well-being, mental health, etc. So yeah, an interesting area to think about. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Even with the physical like indicators, I do wonder, like being a teacher myself, if if we went into a school and strapped them all up with a whoop band, like what kind of results we'd get at different points during the day and and with different classes and children and stuff, it would be interesting data, wouldn't it? Yeah, (laughs) my my wife was a teacher as well, so um, they do the killer K every week. You know where the kids get out a kilometer. Um, to, to do a wee run and um, you know the kids clearly love getting out into the great outdoors um, but even at that early age p6 or sorry six years of age seven years of age there's quite a competitive element to it you know you can see the ones that are really taking it seriously she says so yeah yeah for sure oh we have the daily mile over here which is yeah, yeah, it's yeah. running a mile every day which is great um so in in terms of the culture level, I mean, I think you've kind of already touched upon this, but if um, an organisation, a head of an organisation, for example, a head teacher at a school is is mm. listening to this and thinking about um, burnout and helping their staff, mm. um, are, are there any kind of key suggestions that you would yeah. that you would have to um, you know to address burnout if they're noticing that? staff in in their um, organization are becoming burnt out like what what are some simple wins yeah it uh, really does require a dual approach too often it gets reduced to a psychological intervention or we'll organize some mindfulness courses for our staff right so the solution gets situated in the individual <clears throat> and people can respond to that, but it gives rise to what's called the resilience paradox, where actually that increases the vulnerability for other people coming after, because there's a kind of sense that, well, we've addressed the source of the problem, we've fixed the minds of those staff members, and actually the indicators around the effectiveness of psychological interventions uh, for issues like burnout, um, um, unfortunately, they're they're small. There is an indication of an effect, but it's small. And I think that does highlight the need for systemic change, for organizations to take responsibility and good leadership to make those policy changes that actually give staff members the opportunity to blend work and life better to have the opportunity to have autonomy and agency rather than be micromanaged and to allow people the chance to get together and to reflect as a group. So of the psychological interventions, probably the most effective are those that are psychosocial. So they are, if you like, focusing not just on psychological well-being, but also social functioning and bringing in some capacity for people to interact together in ways that are intended to help reduce burnout. So, yeah, there's psychological, there's social, and then there's organizational changes that need to happen. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Like the 
when we're given more of an opportunity to like mingle with Pete, with, with, our, with our colleagues and share what we're finding difficult at the moment or, or, or trying to uh, bounce ideas off each other, you, you always walk away from those interactions feeling a bit more energized and a bit more motivated, but it feels like, and I wonder post COVID whether there's like less, even less opportunities for that. We're, we're so kind of like isolated and just trying to like get our head down and we've got our own classroom we've got our own office space whatever yeah. it is and just like come on get on with it whereas actually we know that it's, it's all about connection isn't it and collective action and i think right. that's where organizations like unions are so important to represent collectives of individuals because we as um lone people trying to bring about change yeah we can make a, a difference around that but if we're acting together, I think that's such a, a more powerful thing. And um, so, yeah, collective action. And if people are interested in that, there's a book um, called The Art of Insubordination by Todd Cashton, which sounds like a very provocative uh, <laughs> title, which it is, but um, it's not a recipe for anarchy. It's uh, <laughs> a reflection really on how we can work collectively to bring about uh, improvements and to the status quo that actually add up to a difference in how people experience life. Right. Great. Great. Good recommendation. Um, and just going back to what you were saying about like, you know, how you can have those certain interventions that are put in place. And I, I see a lot of this um, in the education world on Twitter talking about like, you know, complaining or it's like another yoga class or something like that and all this won't fix anything. And I, and I get it, but then it makes me laugh because the next tweet you'll scroll onto is like, this um, is a photo of a mug filled with chocolate and sweets. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, look how great this is in my school. Look at, like, look what they're doing for my well-being. And I'm like, are you for real? Like, do, do, you, do you think a mug of sugary processed food is yeah. going to improve the health and well-being of staff in the long term? But people yeah. lap it up and love it. And I, I like, I, I, I type a comment and then I delete it because I'm like, oh, yeah. it's just not worth getting involved. I wonder what, you're, what, what, what do you think of, uh, of, of mugs filled with sweets? Are they going to improve the well-being of schools and organizations? I think everything in moderation, including <laughs> a bit of moderation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I think uh, it's been interesting. I've just finished reading a book called The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter, um, which uh, yeah, makes that, yeah. hugely interesting reading around the notion of rewilding. And he does focus on diet and nutrition and, um, yeah, about some of the fatal flaws around dieting as an approach. Um but yeah, it, it, it makes for interesting reading. And some of the people that he speaks to, um, primary source experts in the field of exercise, nutrition, sleep, etc., you know, they highlight that, you know, it's it's not about being restrictive. It's not about ruling foods out. Of it's course. about recognizing what those foods do and what they can't do. And about the density of the food being so important that you want to strike that balance right between your tummy being full and you getting adequate calories for you to do what you need to do and unfortunately some of these very high calorie foods have very low density and the classic example that he talks about in the book is olive oil um like it's very calorific but it will not fill you up necessarily so you will want to have more and more if that was the only thing that you had access to so as you try to fill your tummy more and more, then obviously you're pumping more and more calories into your body too. Um, so yeah, everything in moderation and recognizing the density and the calorific implications of, of what we are eating. Yeah, yeah, of course. And like, you know, I say that, but of course we all enjoy a sweet treat. I've yeah. just got back from Oslo and I had my fair share of like every day I was having pastries and cakes because you know i'm in oslo of course i'm gonna do yeah. that um but like you say everything in moderation it's just that uh, it's just i just think it's become kind of so kind of um pervasive it's just like every day every day it's okay to um treat yourself and i think it's maybe not doing ourselves any favor if if it's every day every day like you said moderation of course we all enjoy a, a treat once a week whatever it is but um yeah, if, if it's every day, it's not a treat anymore, as my mum would say. <laughs> That's it. Good. 
good wisdom. <laughs> yeah, like <it. laughs> right. Well, um, Russ, there's so much more I could talk to you about, like especially around. You've mentioned your your um, working like in sports and with athletes and the psychology around that. Like, I'd, I'd love to spend another hour talking about that, but I realise we're we're coming up to kind of 45 minutes, and yeah. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, but so I will ask my final like three quick fire insight questions that I ask yep. every guest. Um, the first one is what's one lesson you wish you'd have been taught when you were a child? Hmm. I alluded to this earlier. I think uh, the practice of mindfulness and that capacity to be present and open to thoughts and feelings in a non-judgmental way. I think had I got into that a bit younger, it might have saved me a lot of a lot of hassle, a lot of trouble. Um, because sometimes when we get caught up in in those thoughts and those difficult feelings, the impact of them gets magnified if we struggle against them or we try to pretend they're not there, we try to get rid of them. Um, and actually there's something to be said about leaning into them and carrying them with us as we do what's important to us. So yeah, I think uh, I would have appreciated learning about mindfulness a bit earlier in, mm. in my life. Mm. And maybe this links to the next question that I always ask, which is around um, a habit. Like, is there, is there a habit that you have added to your life that you would recommend other people add to their lives? Is, mm-hmm. is it mindfulness or, or is there something else that you you've introduced that's really made a difference to you? Yeah, I think that there's an overlap and um, self-compassion, I would say, would be a really important tool for people to have in their toolbox. We can be more critical to ourselves than we ever would be to anyone else. And we don't question that. And we can be our own worst critic, quite harsh. So having the opportunity to develop that self-soothing, self-compassionate muscle um, and it does take practice. It, it is a muscle that gets stronger the more we exercise it, but um, it stands us in good stead. And what do I mean by self-compassion? Well, there are, are three elements there. Um, Kristen Neff, who's done a lot of research in the United States, talks about three major components of that self-compassion. Um, so one of it, one aspect is the mindfulness piece, you know, to be mindful and to notice the critical thoughts that we might have. The second um, component is this common humanity piece to recognize that, well, to be human is to err. You know, we will make mistakes. We are imperfect. We are um, fallible. So recognizing that we are not unique in that sense And then the final piece of that jigsaw is kindness. So being kind to oneself. And you can use a compassion break, they're called, and it's just three lines that you would say to yourself. So the first one is that mindfulness piece to recognize I'm going through a difficult time. So you say that back to me, Sam. I'm going through a difficult time. I'm going through a difficult time. And the next line is, all people go through a difficult time, and that's the common humanity piece. So you say that back, all people go through a difficult time. All people go through a difficult time. And the final kindness piece is, may I respond with kindness, kindness to myself and kindness to others. So So may I respond with kindness to myself and to others. Yeah, and sometimes that can be a big ask, right? Oh, for sure. um, But... You know, that's where uh, the practice piece comes in. And, um, you know, we need to be purposeful about making time to do that because it can be the first thing that slips off our radar whenever we're busy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like you've said, the, the, the way we talk to ourselves, we wouldn't talk to anyone else like even our worst enemy like some of the things that we can like the thoughts that we can get wrapped up in it's just Mm -hmm. um we we are so unkind to ourselves aren't we so yeah i think that um that whole explanation that whole practice was was a really great share really appreciate that great um the last question is if you could give everyone in the world one book which book would you give them i think this would have to be (laughs) the little prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which is not easy to say. So, uh, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And uh, he was a Frenchman and um, 
as I understand it, uh, he disappeared during World War II during a flight. Um, but a number of years earlier, he had written a book, which ostensibly is for children. But actually, when you read it, there's a lot for adults. Right. Uh, it really does focus on some really lovely, important themes, loss, love, friendship. Um, and there's some great lines in it. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot to, to take away from it, Sam. And I don't know if you ever read it. No, but I th- I think it's been recommended before, like a while ago, and I can't remember which guest um, mentioned that one, but I'm sure someone else has, has mentioned it. So I'm trying to remember the line, and I think it's one sees clearly only with the heart. Anything essential is invisible to the eyes, ah. which is beautiful. You know, that idea yeah. about, well, sometimes we have to feel it rather than see it, and then we know that stuff matters. So, yeah. Nice, nice. Great recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, Ross, thank you so much for your time today. Um, This is the kind of conversation that I I absolutely love and I feel kind of such a privilege that I get to speak to someone with your experience and and like wisdom. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the invite. It's been great. Like you, I enjoy having conversations with like-minded people about the things that I'm passionate about, and clearly they are too, and I get that from you. So well done on pulling the Insight Podcast together. I think it's a a great thing. And if I can, just um, give a little bit of a shout out for the Five to Thrive newsletter that I publish monthly because it does reflect on many of these important themes. So I think... uh, We'll put the link maybe to the latest issue of the Five to Thrive newsletter in the show notes. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. We can do that. And and is Twitter the best place for people to get in touch with you as well? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, or X as it is now. <laughs> still getting used to that. And uh, Instagram. So at Ross G. White, uh, all one word. Um, yeah. So it'd be great to, to connect with others through those mediums. Brilliant. Right. Thanks again. And I'll, I'll chat to you soon. So thank you for tuning in. I really hope you found my conversation with Ross insightful. If you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with friends, family, and colleagues who you think would find it helpful. You can also support the podcast by following and rating the show on whichever app you're listening on. Thank you again, and I look forward to bringing you another episode soon.